1: The Syrian refugee crisis has finally made it to Europe's doorstep. Over the past several weeks, masses of refugees have made their way to southeastern Europe, mostly en route to Germany and other countries in northern Europe. And now, after four years of conflict, the Syrian refugee crisis is suddenly a crisis for Europe. Here with me to discuss the implications of this refugee flow is Ellen Lapson of the Stimson Center. We have a fascinating discussion about how the conflict in Syria and Iraq is manifesting itself on the streets of Europe and how the scale of the out-migration from the Middle East to Europe resembles the wave of Irish migrants escaping the potato famine of the 1850s. This episode is being brought to you by World Politics Review, which provides uncompromising analysis of critical global trends to give policymakers, business people, and academics the context they need to have the confidence they want. The good people at World Politics Review are offering Global Dispatches podcast listeners a two-week free trial and then a 50% discount on an annual subscription. To redeem this offer, go to about.worldpoliticsreview.com dispatches or click the link on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And as always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to send me a note, recommend someone I should interview or a topic I should cover, or let me know what you think about the podcast. And now here it is, my conversation with Ellen Lapson. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Lanyon from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
0: now understand that the scale of the syrian out migration is truly exceptional it doesn't happen that often there are times when countries experience violence and you know people in a part of a country go across the border and then the expectation is that most of them will go back again but the scale of the Syrian out migration, half the population of Syria's population is 22 million people. 50% of that population is either dead, and they're saying maybe 850,000 dead, uh, or internally displaced within Syria, living in wretched conditions, or has already moved beyond the borders. And we are talking truly five, four or five million people physically leaving and walking. Uh, to other countries of refuge. So I thought it was breathtaking and that it was worth thinking, what is this comparable to? So in the case of the Irish potato famine, which I grew up in Massachusetts, and the impact of Irish migration to the United States is a huge and, of course, positive story over time. But at the time, I'm sure it was seen as uh, a very serious challenge to absorb these desperate, economically you know, disadvantaged folks um, who had chosen to mo- to move because the agricultural sector of Ireland collapsed. So, literally a quarter of the population left Ireland in the fr- in the decade after the potato crop got this fungus and couldn't grow anymore. Um, and most of those came to the United States. So, I was just trying to capture an image that was comparable in in scale in terms of the ratio of the home population that left and the potential impact on the receiving countries. I mean, it it is a
1: striking image. I mean, do you mm -hmm. think that um, Syrian migration to, say, Berlin will fundamentally change the character of that city the way, say, Irish migration changed the character of, of Boston, which you referenced?
0: Well I think it's possible. I mean the Germans have made this remarkable decision to they are saying they anticipate up to 800,000 uh migrants this year and several countries including Germany and Sweden I believe have predetermined basically the Syrians are already pre-cleared if you will as a needy population. They don't have to go through the same screening presumably that the afghans or the ethiopians or the libyans go through so the syrians have sort of been pre-approved as a as a refugee status uh... cohort of people so we can, you know, think of other examples of, um, you know, neighborhoods of major urban areas that are called new something. So I remember in Athens, there's a neighbor, neighborhood called New Smyrna, Neo Smyrna, which is basically a community of people who all migrated from, you know, the, the Anatolian town that was now, um, uh, Izmir. They all migrated to Athens, and there's a part of the city that's theirs. Um, So imagine even Chinatowns or ethnic neighborhoods. I'm not saying that this is overwhelmingly hard for the receiving country. The receiving country might do very well absorbing these folks, but it has social and cultural and political consequence.
1: Um, So one thing that's sort of struck me as I've watched this story unfold over the last several weeks is that. You know, for for, um, years now, there have been waves of refugees fleeing uh, to Europe, mostly, though, via the Mediterranean Sea. And even this year, the number of people fleeing via the Mediterranean Sea is something like three or fourfold that who are trying to cross land routes via southeastern Europe. Um, But yet this now the, the, the land route migration seems to have captured people's attention in ways that the sea migration has not. Um, one, I, I guess, first, do you agree with, with what I just said with that assessment? And two, if so, like, why do you think that is?
0: Well, first of all, I think the migrants are remarkably intelligent in terms of how they receive information on the threats of various options that they're facing. So, uh, you know, sociologists who've talked to, who've interviewed migrants at, at, in holding stations or in their eventual country of resettlement Go back and ask them, you know how did you make the choices you made? Uh, the migration Policy Institute has just done a study this summer about this of the importance of understanding um, how do the migrants themselves uh, make the decisions that they have to make and so i 'm imagining that some of what we 're seeing this this long march through uh you know southeastern europe and eventually to hungary and the czech republic on the way to germany is in part because the maritime routes are now seen as too dangerous um, certainly the mistreat and it's it's ironic because of course the land routes are also uh horribly dangerous in some cases so um, you know i can't explain specifically if, if i were living in syria and you walk to turkey and then you walk i mean they're doing this on foot there is a, a the land route may be easier for some of them or they've decided that the sea route is too dangerous the sea route let's remember in a way you say total numbers are higher but each particular boat can't carry that many people and if a an extended family or a town is all moving out together um... maybe they calculate that it's more it, it's easier to do it um, by land um- so the, you referenced
1: earlier how Germany made a, a pretty remarkable you know, decision to take in 800,000. I actually suspect that maybe that number will be higher as other countries uh, close their door. Um, and th- that sort of brings up a, a question though of why is the European response to this so like, disparate? Why are different countries reacting in, in just fundamentally different ways? And is there any, I guess, sense that a common European policy might be forged?
0: So I think this reminds us that while we think of the unification of Europe as a completed project, that sort of everybody's given up the same portion of their sovereignty to be part of this thing called the European Union, in reality there's still this undertow of retaining as much national control of your laws, your customs, your practices, et cetera, as possible. So I think the migration issue has just become a a remarkably illuminating uh device by which we understand the push and pull of being in the European Union so you know these countries get together and they have these excruciatingly long meetings where they try to forge common policies so this thing called the dublin re- uh, uh regulation it began in the late 90s and then got revised a couple of times most recently in 2013 and it was a, a long struggle. You can imagine lawyers in every foreign ministry fuss, you know, fighting over the exact words of whether um, migrants would, asa- that asylum seekers would be handled by only one country. So that you're, the first country in which you apply for asylum, that country is responsible for essentially managing your record, even if you choose to try to go live somewhere else. You know, if you want to live in Sweden, but you've come to Hungary first. So that's the that's a sort of a mechanism to create more efficiency for the migrants and for the receiving countries. But, but it's Hungary, clear. Yeah, but, but it's not working. Yeah. It's right. Right. Working, under okay? under stress. So it's just not happening. So the right? system Hungary, is broken. Yeah. Like yeah. Hungary is so re- refusing to do this. So you have Greece and Italy that are receiving, you know, hugely disproportionate numbers because of where they're located, Um, and then the folks who are coming across, walking by land to these, you know, uh, southeastern countries, some of these countries are just digging their heels in and saying, you know, we don't want to be responsible for facilitating this process, and we're going to do everything we can to even prevent the people from entering our national soil, even if Hungary isn't their goal. So, you know, in some cases, this touches on domestic politics. Look, our politicians are having an immigration debate where some pretty unattractive things get said um, about how we feel about people trying to come and live in the United States. Um, And so that is playing out in all the national politics of Europe. But but the larger point is, does the EU... But as it's, as a distinct political entity, have the authority to tell countries, no, 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 you have to take X number this year, and if they're applying for asylum in your country, you are obliged to process their asylum application. That authority of Brussels, if you think of Brussels as the sort of, you know, super capital of the European Union, seems to have broken down, and countries are so frustrated at, or so fearful of their own domestic... Uh, you know, they can't handle the influx of people um, that countries are just kind of breaking away and going their own way. So my understanding is that the Germans have virtually said we don't consider the Dublin regulations to be operative, you know, or operational for us. We're going to make a a standalone decision ourselves. We're going to set our own policy. I mean, it
1: just seems to or it goes to show that under enormous stress, like the edifice of the European Union starts to, to crumble a bit.
0: Um, That's right. So but it's still trying to set like remember, you know, it's not it's not that they're not trying. I mean, I think these the countries after the first uh, wave of earlier in the summer, May, June, when there were all those drownings in the Mediterranean off the between Libya and Italy, um, they scrambled and they tried to generate a new strategy which was to distribute the refugees on a, you know, on a kind of population ratio basis that every country would have a quota. But, again, Hungary and some other countries said, you know, hell no, we're not interested. Um, But a few countries did step up to the plate. Uh, France and, I believe, the U.K. at the time. The U.K. is also kind of an interesting outlier because they are not contiguous to the rest of the countries. They, um, you know, have some preference to establish their own policy and not coordinate as closely um but it you know so again i don't want to suggest that the europeans aren't scrambling they're having meetings of ministers of interior and ministers of foreign affairs and border police and you know they're they're expanding the coast guard capabilities of italy and greece and there's a lot they have to do um but i think that they perceive the scale of the problem to be overwhelming in fact if you look at the populations of some of these European countries, really, what is another fifty thousand people? you know it's not well, like it's going to completely change the demographic balance in their country, but it's been revved up to have such political consequence that they seem to be um you know having trouble um, well that, yeah. living up to their principles. their principles, of course, are universal human rights, et cetera. I mean that segues
1: really nicely into um, into, into yeah. a, another point I, I wanted to talk to you about, which is you know that we're talking about Europe, but by far, by far the the greatest number of refugees are in the surrounding countries, are in Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon. Um, Correct. And yeah. uh, so I, I wanted to to ask ask you this: so the humanitarian response in in just ter- pure you know dollars is only funded at about 50 percent. So so agencies like the UN Refugee Agency or UNICEF, or the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, are only getting about half the amount of funding they need to mount a full humanitarian response to help these countries absorb these refugees. Um, do you, uh, like, draw a direct line between the lack of funding that these agencies are getting uh, to support refugees in the surrounding countries and the desire of refugees to want to go further on to to
0: Europe. There could well be a correlation that people who realize that sitting in a camp in northern Jordan or in Lebanon, uh, Lebanon doesn't have formal camps. It allows the refugees to kind of make their way into towns and villages on their own. but it may be that the refugees are saying this isn't working either, so what's my next option? Um, and they you know may be choosing to move on. but I think I might distinguish between some of the people that went just to Lebanon and Jordan um, and those that clearly are aiming for sweden or germany um... the ones that are living right across the border some of them are still going back in and out of syria or iraq or you know the other places of that they're coming from um, so some of them i think do expect to go home um, they still have economic ties to the country they're from and so i think some of them are less motivated to try to get to europe and and some do hope that by kind of hovering on the border and there's uh, remarkable stories of the kind of economic interdependence you know Syrian companies that have now moved their factories to southern germ- to southern turkey and the guy who owns the factory goes back and forth you know and he's bringing uh you know his inventory of supplies uh, over to the turkish side and then he goes back and you know tells some of his workers do you want to work in turkey or do you want to work in aleppo and so there's a kind of a local economy uh, of the immediate surrounding territory of Syria that has a different feel to it than the folks who are trying to get into Hungary en route to the Nordic countries. So it may be that's two different populations. Um, but I also, but your earlier point is also quite true that there is going to be, at least in Lebanon and possibly Lebanon and Jordan, a kind of point of no return where this ability to provide any uh, adequate shelter, food uh, to to these refugees is on the brink of collapse. You you can tell that the international aid workers, whether they work for the UN directly or whether they're in NGOs, are just heartbroken when you're telling these desperate people that their food rations are going to be reduced by 40% because the international community has kind of lost interest in them. And that's happening now. Um, and so the humanitarian crisis is, is indisputable. Turkey's a different story. Turkey uh, took a very different approach. Turkey's a big country. It's wealthy from a perspective of natural resources. And it basically has not resisted the notion that they will now have a Syrian minority virtually permanently as part of their country. Um,
1: so one uh, really important and provocative point that you make in your piece and we're in World Politics Review, which I'd like to discuss, is this question of why migrants aren't choosing or opting to go to wealthier Gulf countries, say like UAE um, or maybe even Kuwait, um, which are, are you know, com- comparably you know, stable and obviously very wealthy. Um, why, why is that the case?
0: well i'm i'm surmising here i have not tried to do any empirical you know research in interviewing migrants but it is quite striking to me that this arab arab dynamic is is quite distinct that the syrians first of all if you know lebanon and syria they kind of fancy themselves you know very uh, similar to european culture um, by education language temperament etc so i think there was the cultural gravitational pull of europe they all want to live in paris or montreal uh, where they can speak french etc et so there's been a, there's a historical connection there but it is really striking to me this time how the rich gulf countries that are now much more urban and developed uh... to the best of my knowledge didn't even offer to say okay we'll take twenty five thousand syrians and we'll you know, build townhouses for you, and you can work in our environment. There's jobs for people who are bilingual in Arabic and something else. That it doesn't have, it didn't happen. And I think it's a. I just wonder whether it's a mutual uh, understanding that it wouldn't work. Um, that the Syrians are too. You know, urbane to want to live in the very different political environment of the Gulf, um, and that the Gulf countries maybe are nervous about the the politics that would come with mm-hmm. these Syrians. I mean, um, I would
1: imagine, you know, that that you know, unlike say Europe, uh, these countries are not stable, right? And and so an influx or a large influx of refugees might have more of a destabilizing effect in like you know Saudi Arabia or Bahrain than it would in you know Hungary.
0: Yeah, but you know, look, we've had long, you know, decades where educated Palestinians, you know, formed the backbone of some of the institutions in the small Gulf countries, you know, where they were the teachers and the accountants and you know, they were in most cases not given citizenship, not given permanent rights, but they were at least allowed to live and work there. And it's not happening this time. Um and I again I'm I'm surmising that it's the sort of a mutual agreement to, to not think that way, to not think that the Gulf countries should be making some kind of special effort to absorb some of these Syrians. And, and I just think in, in terms of fairness, when we look at, well, the international community isn't doing enough for these people, it's like, why is it always Europe's responsibility? What about other countries that do have resources um, in which there are other, you know, shared ties? So I'm not blaming the Gulf countries, but I'm fascinated at how much the Syrians themselves don't seem to be um, looking to the, you know, we saw the same thing with Iraq, that virtually no Iraqis tried to get into Saudi Arabia, um, you know, when they were fleeing Iraq. They went to Jordan, they went to Lebanon, um, and they went to Syria, you know, just a decade ago, the flow was in a different direction. So, um, uh My impression is that the Gulf countries do think this is catastrophic. They are making pledges to the UN. They have been financing some of the humanitarian aid, um, but I see no sign that they have been willing publicly to say, uh, we want to do our part and help resettle some of the Syrian refugees.
1: Uh, Well, Ellen, thank you so much for your time. This was really interesting. All right. Thank you. All right, thanks for listening. Thank you to Ellen and to World Politics Review. And thanks again, everyone who is writing reviews on iTunes. I really appreciate it, and it's a selfless act because it helps others discover the podcast. Also, a huge thank you to everyone who's supporting the Dawn's Digest e-book, the Kindle single, Daughters of the Red Light, Coming of Age in Mumbai's Brothels. We're improbably still number one on at least two different Amazon charts. So thanks again for checking that out. It's just $1.99 or free if you have a Prime account, and there's a link to the book on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, thank you so much, and we'll see you later. Bye.